Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 511th episode of the History Goes Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, this is another one of those episodes where I was just focusing on one location. And as I dug in, I was like, there is not enough here to do a full episode on. I wonder if there's some other stuff going on in this city. Sure enough, found out that Quincy, Illinois is quite a haunted place. So that's what we're going to be sharing on this episode. Excellent. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Candy with an I, Samantha, Monica, Shayla, Jacqueline, Sid, Erica with a K thrown in there, and Elizabeth. Thank you so much for joining the Spooktacular crew. And now this moment, Noddity. The moment in oddity was suggested by Dewey Oxberger. In the province of Caserta, in the Campania region of Italy, there is a theater complex long lost and forgotten for centuries. The theater of Mount Sant Nicola is situated at the top of Mount Nicola some 450 meters above sea level. The path leading to the complex is a steep journey. The structures show evidence of Roman construction dating to the 1st century BC. However, the Samnites were the people known to occupy the region for hundreds of years. The complex was abandoned in the 2nd century AD and was largely forgotten, probably due in part to its inaccessibility. Over the centuries, the theater temple complex was taken back by the mountain's vegetation. It was not rediscovered until 2001. After a brush fire in 2000, Professor Nicolina Lombardi, a Campania historian, was flying over the region when he noticed bits of exposed ruins. Excavations began in 2002, and the theater's design was decided to be of Greco-Roman styling. By 2015, many additional details had emerged. There was an upper and lower cavia, which are tiered semicircular seating typically found in ancient outdoor theaters. At this location, the cavia accommodated approximately 2,000 spectators. An orchestra pit was also revealed, as well as vaulted entrances to the theater. Experiments were conducted to determine the best methods of restoration to preserve the theater seating. By 2020, 12 of the caveateers had been restored. The goal is to reopen to spectators for future productions, hosted at the Mount San Nicola Theater. A 2,000-spectator capacity theater being lost for centuries, only to be rediscovered after a brush fire, certainly is odd. Pull the 
covers up tight. That chill you feel isn't the air conditioning. <laughs> and now, this month in history. month of November on the 4th in 1842, lawyer Abraham Lincoln married Mary Ann Todd. Mary, or Molly as she was nicknamed, had wealthy and politically connected parents which encouraged her interest in politics. When she met Abraham, she was a mere 21 to his 31 years. She fell in love with the kind-hearted, lanky man and accepted his proposal of marriage. Despite Lincoln's lack of political prospects and poverty at the time, Molly's parents supported his marriage to their daughter. Unexpectedly, Lincoln broke off their engagement in early 1841, but the romance reconvened in the fall of 1842. It's been said that they actually reconnected much sooner but kept the relationship a secret. On the date of November 4th, Lincoln went to a minister's home and told him he was going to get married by the end of the day. Mary's family was surprised by the sudden nuptial plans but wanted Mary to be married in her family home. Mr. and Mrs. Lincoln would go on to live in Springfield, Illinois for almost two decades before Abraham was elected president. Quincy, Illinois became a thriving riverfront featuring steamboats and trade due to its location along the Mississippi River. Many Germans settled in the town and one of those people was a man named George Metz. He built his mansion, Villa Catherine, here, and it seems that his beloved dog has stayed on there in the afterlife. This isn't the only haunted location in Quincy. There are many legends connected to this historic city. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of Quincy, Illinois. This is another one of those cities that's along the Mississippi River. And I don't know what it is about the Mississippi. Maybe it's any large river because it's this flowing body of water that it's been historically very important. Lots of transportation, lots of commerce. But so many places along the Mississippi are haunted. Illinois was known as a gem of a city to people who visited, and so it took on the nickname Gem City. Did you know that the city that we live in right now, Claremont, used to be called Gem of the Hills? I do, because you told me. <laughs> now it's choice of champions because we have an Olympic training center here, but we used to be the Gem of the Hills, and everybody would say, wait a minute, you're in Florida. There are no hills. There are here. <laughs> in Claremont, there is. The French were the first Europeans to arrive in the region, and they set up fur trading as the main form of commerce. By 1763, the British had taken over what was called New France. They lost their claim after losing the Revolutionary War. Illinois was part of the Northwest Territory and became a state in 1818. A man named John Wood founded Bluffs, Illinois in 1819, which officially became Quincy in 1825. The town was named after President John Quincy Adams and became very prosperous with steamboats and railroads linking the town to the west. German immigrants flooded into the town from 1829 to 1870, 
and the city continues to recognize its German heritage to this day. And as we said, there's a lot of haunted locations here, so we're going to share them with you. The first one up is Villa Catherine. One of the German immigrants to come here was George Metz. He had become a very wealthy man and had traveled extensively. During his travels, he fell in love with Islamic architecture. He sketched many of the buildings he saw, and so when it came time to build his own mansion, he wanted something Mediterranean. His main inspiration was the Villa Ben Aben in Morocco. Metz chose a high bluff overlooking the Mississippi River as the site for his home. He hired architect George Berensmeyer, who built the unique home in 1900. The interior featured a courtyard, reflecting pool, and harem, and the exterior was brick with white plaster veneer. Other Islamic influences are seen in the miniature minaret from the Mosque of Thais in Tunisia. The interior court is surrounded by columns, like the Court of Dolls in the Alcazar in Seville, and the capitals were inspired by the Alhambra in Granada. The house is often referred to as a Moorish castle. Metz filled the home with exotic souvenirs and furnishings he had collected. So I tried to look up stuff on this George Metz to find out more about him, and I found out that there's really not much known about him personally. He was a very private man, apparently. So people started telling stories about the man. This is why sometimes you might want to let people know a little bit about yourself. Otherwise, they just make up their own things, I guess. (laughs) They tried to figure out why he called his home Villa Catherine. Was it named for a woman he had loved? The story started spreading that Metz had met a fair-haired, blue-eyed woman in Germany. The two traveled together, and George decided he would like to bring her back to Illinois with him. The woman refused to relocate, and Metz returned brokenhearted and became mostly a recluse in his newly built castle. Although he occasionally entertained friends, and he hosted a wedding in 1904. Metz lived as a bachelor in the villa for 12 years with his dog, Bingo. And Bingo <laughs> was his name. <laughs> Bingo was a 212-pound Great Dane Metz had gotten in Denmark. A special edition was built for Bingo off the kitchen. I would say, because those dogs are huge, that you got to have a lot of space for them. I used to clean for a woman who had three Great Danes. That didn't last long because the house would be trashed within 10 minutes of Seconds. The cleaning. So I'm like, <laughs> I'm, they, I'm not doing this. They had full reign of going in and out, right? Yeah. And she lived out on property. So they would bring in Brown all the and sand, sand and, and stuff. Everything. I'm like, you know what? You're going to have to hire somebody else because I'm not doing this. Bingo eventually died and was buried on the property and Metz fell into a deep depression. He sold Villa Catherine in 1912. The people who bought the house worked for the Alton Quincy Interurban Railroad and they planned to tear down the house and build a rail yard, which fortunately never happened. So imagine you have this couple that come up and are like, oh dear, this is such a great house, we should buy it. And George Metz is like, oh, what a nice little couple coming up here. They weren't married to each other, and they had no intent of actually keeping it there. In my mind, I'm thinking, I understand that you want to build this rail yard, but could you find somewhere other than this very distinctive architectural treasure? Right. Because <laughs> when you see this place, it is very different and not something you would expect to see in Illinois. And you're just going to, what, tear that down? As happens so often. Yeah. It's very sad. However, the house did fall into ruin. And when Met saw it again in 1932, he told a reporter who accompanied him that he wished he still owned the villa so he could tear it down. Because basically he felt like they destroyed his home. He was devastated to see the state of his beloved home. Metz died from pneumonia in 1937. Villa Catherine passed through various hands through the years, including musician and nightclub owner Bob Moore and his wife and children. 
and Harold C. McCoy, who modernized the house and was finally saved for good by the friends of the castle. They leased the building from the Quincy Park District and began restoring the property. The house was transformed into a tourist and cultural center. Stories of Villa Catherine being haunted have been told for decades. People who had lived there claimed that odd things happened in the house, like lights turning off and on by themselves and doors slamming all on their own. Some people thought that George Metz had returned to his former home. Disembodied footsteps were heard pacing, especially around the reflecting pool. Staff at the center believe that not only is the spirit of Metz here, but also his beloved dog, Bingo. The sound of Bingo's toenails clicking on the tile floors of the house is heard often when the house is quiet. Rivertown Paranormal Society investigated the villa in the spring of 2009. They captured several EVPs. One EVP sounded like a lady yelling in German from the basement area. One investigator asked, Mr. Metz, are you there? While in his bedroom, and they captured a yes. There were also EVPs that said, Oh, sweet dog, I'll watch the door. And Mary? Is that for Mary Lincoln? (laughs) (laughs) Synchronicity. (laughs) They do occasionally host uh, ghost hunts here and stuff, so definitely someplace to check out. Next, we have the Old Rebel House. There was a house located at the corner of 2nd and Vermont Streets that was nicknamed the Old Rebel House. This became a hideout for Southern sympathizers and spies during the Civil War. In the 1880s, a woman lived there with her three younger children on the upper floor while her married daughter lived downstairs. The second floor had a long balcony that stretched from one end of the house to the other, and there was no way to reach the balcony other than going through a room, and each room upstairs had a door to the balcony. The mother left for work one morning and placed her infant son in the care of her two younger daughters. At some point, the two girls fought over who would get to rock the baby, but they were interrupted when the door to the balcony sprung open and a sinister-looking man stepped inside the room. He stumbled across the room and out into the hallway, where he fell against some quilts that were hung over the stairway railing. The stranger threw the quilts on the floor, then picked them up and rearranged them on the railing. The man then turned and started walking back towards the girls, and then he lurched to the side and headed out the door that he had come through originally. The girls claimed that he, quote, looked just like the picture you see of the devil. And I'm wondering what picture they're talking about with the devil, because I would think at that time he'd be red with the horns and the tail, and we know he doesn't actually look that way, so... After the man left, the girls began screaming for their sister. I don't know why they didn't start screaming immediately. When she got upstairs, they told her about the man and pointed to the door. The older sister found it locked. Her sisters had to be lying, and for that, she spanked them. When the mother returned home, she heard the story from her older daughter and gave the younger ones another licking. Through the years, other people who lived in the house claimed to have encounters with ghosts, so possibly that is what the girls had seen. The house no longer stands. Since the entity did not seem to react to them at all, I wonder if it was just something residual. It's weird. I would normally say that, except for that he actually handled the quilts and threw them on the floor and then rearranged them. Well, that's true. So he had to have been... But maybe that's where he had his quilts previously. (laughs) Yeah, it's just so strange. I'm like, you know, they say there was no other way to get up to the balcony, but the balcony had to have been supported by something to the ground. So... You know, there's some men, maybe even some women who could climb up a post. Yeah, the column. So, I mean, I'm just imagining this was some drunk guy who I don't know if he's like, I can't get in the door. It's locked. So he shimmied up to the balcony to get in, finds a door unlocked and stumbles through and is like, whoa, and probably looked like the devil because he's disheveled. I'd like to see a drunk man try to climb up a column. (laughs) 
I have to say, sometimes I would think with whatever that would take, you'd have to be drunk to think about doing such a thing. Well, this is true. <laughs> yeah, just a strange story. And that the fact that the door was locked when the sister, you know, checked it. Of course, this is a story. I don't know that any of this actually ever happened, but they tell it in Quincy about this particular home. But the baby was okay. Yeah. That's what I was worried about. The baby slept through the whole thing. I thought they were going to say that he stole the baby or something. Yeah. I mean, you're just waiting for something to happen. And it's just like nothing bad happened. He just kind of stumbled through the house. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Next up, we have Madison Grammar School. The Madison Grammar School was located at 2435 Main Street. It was closed and sold in 2019 and is being renovated into apartments. A house had stood here before the school, and a legend claims that a woman was brutally murdered in the house. The murder was never solved. People who moved into the house later found that they couldn't get the blood out of the oak floorboards. They would hear the sounds of a body being dragged down the stairs. This is what happened to the woman. She was killed on the second floor, dragged down the stairs, and stuffed in a closet. The house was eventually torn down, and the school was built in 1890. A mysterious fire that nearly destroyed the school in 1982 was thought to be paranormal in origin. Next is Quincy Junior High School, which is located at 100 South 14th Street and has been ranked the seventh most haunted school in Illinois. The school opened in 1933 and started as a high school that eventually converted to a junior high school. A major renovation was completed in 2022. There could be a couple of reasons why it's haunted. The first is that a story claims a student hanged himself inside a school bathroom after his girlfriend broke up with him. The other reason is that a student drowned in the swimming pool. A student named Nathan Hobing said, Former students and teachers tell me that on the anniversary of the student's death, that they've heard footsteps and mumbling coming from the bathroom of where the student died. In my three years, I've never personally heard the voices. Some of my former classmates have claimed to have heard the strange noises, but I haven't. And of course, it's a bathroom. And I'm assuming it was the male bathroom this time. And now on to Harrison Hills, which is a housing community that is also known as Indian Hills because there had been Indian mounds here before. These mounds were thought to be burial in nature, which explains why residents claim to see the apparitions of Native Americans in the wooded areas around the community. Native American chanting is also sometimes heard. Burton Cave. This is located around 10 miles east of Quincy and named for the town of Burton, which was founded in 1825. The cave was said to have been discovered by some locals during a snake hunt and not the good kind, Kelly. Oh, so were they trying to get rattlesnakes? Yeah, so like rattlesnake roundup. Yeah, so like when you guys do a quote unquote snake hunt, you're going out to see how many different varieties and types and numbers and things are in an area. Localities. Yeah. Yeah. This one was actually to get rid of them, and it was said that several hundred were killed by settlers in one day. So that tells you just how many were in this 
This was an area that had a lot of snakes living there. So you guys would have loved it. Two men named Tilford Hogan and Perry Clingingsmith. There's a name for you. Clingingsmith discovered the cave, which more than likely formed during an ice age when water made its way through cracks in the bedrock and dissolved limestone. The cave became a popular picnic spot and is today a nature preserve that features cool formations like the Devil's Hitching Post, which is a pillar formed from stalactites and stalagmites that met in the middle. And I can never remember which is which, which one goes up and which goes down. Tights hang from the ceiling tightly. Mites might reach the ceiling. Oh, that's a good way to remember. There's also a round column with the depression in the top that catches water that is nicknamed the spring. There's also a natural bridge. The Herald Whig reported in a June 1947 article, Burton Cave is interesting. It tends to be cozy, but its crooks and changes provide a sense of the mysterious necessary for any cave worthwhile. Its walls, carved from the earth by water long ages ago, are rugged. The ceilings vary, in some places smooth with the appearance of sandstone, in some places hobnailed with tiny stalactites as the water carrying the lime from the rock drips to the floor. In other places, the rocks form convolutions overhead. A local farmer named W.H. Tandy owned the cave until the 1960s, and then Quincy University leased it to study its biology. Then the Nature Conservancy held it for a time, and now the Illinois Department of Natural Resources oversees it. The endangered Indiana bat, I didn't know there was such a thing, lives here and is protected by a barrier that was built about 38 feet inside the entrance. And apparently the cave is currently closed to the public because a fungus was found growing here that causes white nose syndrome. What is that? Do you want to go down that rabbit hole, Kelly? To go explore white noses? (laughs) But we like bats. Maybe there'll be some bats down here. All right, you jump first. Hello? Hello? We're down here in the rabbit hole. And we've brought you with us. White nose syndrome is a disease that affects hibernating bats and is caused by a fungus. They say PD for short, because otherwise it's pseudogymnoesiscus destructus tans some things. Say what? Anyway, it looks like a white fuzz on bats' faces, which is how the disease got its name. This fungus grows in cold, dark, and damp places which is exactly where bats are, so not a good thing. It attacks the bare skin of bats while they're hibernating in a relatively inactive state. As it grows, it causes changes in bats that make them become active more than usual and burn up fat they need to survive the winter. Bats with white nose syndrome may do strange things like fly outside in the daytime in the winter. Aww. This was first found in 2007 in caves near Albany, New York. The spores can last a long time on surfaces such as clothes, shoes, and outdoor gear. So even though people do not get white nose syndrome, we can unknowingly move the fungus from one place to another. So that's why it's close to the public. They don't want it spread. Gotcha. Oh, it looks so sad. These pictures of these like little brown bats and they just have this white stuff all over their nose. And some of them, it looks like it's on their head and their wings. Poor things. Now, how are we going to get out of here? All right, Kelly. Um... Let's get Mort to help us get out of here. What are we going to do about the contamination on our clothes, though? I've got it taken care of. All right, Mort, throw down the rope. Wait, what is? What do you have? What is, is that? A giant hose? It's a, a fire hose. Mort's playing fire in the cemetery.
You gals are all wet. Oh my gosh, Mort, at least you could have used heated water. Look at my hair. (laughs) All caves seem to have legends connected to them, and this one is no different. A family decided to have their picnic here one day in the 1880s, and they came upon a horrifying scene. There was a woman in a white dress who appeared to be lifeless, lying on some kind of altar, and a tall hooded figure in a black robe was standing over her. The family left quickly and got the sheriff. When they all returned to the area, there was no altar, no dead woman, and no hooded figure. That is very, very weird. Next, we have Quincy University. This is a private Franciscan university that was founded in 1860 by a group of Franciscan friars who left Germany to help serve on the frontier in Illinois. And it makes sense that they came from Germany because most of the immigrants here were German. The school was originally called St. Francis Solanus College and Seminary, and then it became Quincy College in 1917 and finally Quincy University in 1993. Women weren't welcome to the college until the 1920s. People of all faiths are welcome to study here. One of the most beautiful buildings on the campus is Francis Hall, which has a tower at the front of the building and features a very German influence in the architecture. It was built in 1871 and expanded in 1898. A chapel was built in 1911, and more modern residence halls and classroom buildings were built in the 1950s. A notorious person who graduated from Quincy University is serial killer Michael Swango. He was a doctor who became a very prolific killer as he poisoned countless patients with arsenic, or overdoses of prescription drugs. He also more than likely killed his wife and other people around him. Swango's crime stretched into several states and over into Africa, where he ran away to keep from being charged. The FBI estimates that he may have killed at least 60 people. He was only convicted on three counts of first-degree murder and is serving three consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. This guy was allowed to just keep bebopping around. He lied repeatedly to get on at these like teaching colleges and all these different places he would doctor his documents and stuff horrifying and then the minute he would get somewhere all of a sudden patients would start dying and they started looking at him and going hmm several areas on campus are said to be haunted francis hall has the McHugh theater inside of it this had once been a gymnasium and a professor named hugh fitz fitzgerald worked hard to get the theater up and running after he passed away it seemed to return to the theater His apparition has been seen in the light booth both during performances and after hours. Students and staff have both claimed to see him. The namesake for the theater was Professor Charles Persico McHugh, who came to Quincy College in 1904 and was the college's professor of English. His apparition is also believed to be in the theater. A security guard at the theater named Terry Hangerbomber told QUmedia.net, You'll feel someone pull your hair and breathe on your neck. And a cleaning lady at the school for 35 years named Sandy Shutt told the same outlet that she had experienced doors opening and closing on their own many times. A graduate named Kyle Lyon said, Evan and I were in the front of the McHugh Theater. There was nobody on campus at that time. We could hear footsteps around us and somebody whispering something into both of our ears. And after that, we both ran. And another student reported that many people have seen the ghost of a little girl who smells like smoke. Solano Hall, which is home to the University School of Music, was named for St. Francis of Solanus because he was a musician. Before the university owned the building, it was St. Aloysius Orphanage, which burned down many years ago. Stories claim that several children were killed in the tragedy. 
The orphanage was rebuilt and later sold to Quincy College for use as a dormitory for football players. It then became Solano Hall. For years, there have been reports of the spirits of children being seen throughout the building, and when not seen, their disembodied running is heard. Disembodied laughter is also heard, along with the occasional scream. Now, I think that the McHugh Theater is near this location, and so it's thought that the children could be venturing over there, too, because that, to me, is the only way that they could possibly have a little girl who smells smoke over in the McHugh Theater, because no children died there. Next up, we have another theater, the Washington Theater. And this is located at 427 Hampshire Street. This was originally called the Washington Square Theater and was built in 1923 and 1924 by Pete Pinkelman and Albert Corey. The theater was designed by renowned Chicago architect Edward P. Rupert in a Mediterranean Renaissance style with a Byzantine influence. Rupert was known for his theater architecture. He designed 10 other theaters, and this was said to be his most elegant. The building was brick with terracotta tiling of multicolors on the exterior and terracotta detailing in the trim, cornices, and wall panels of the interior. There was seating for 1,500 people with the stage surrounded by a proscenium arch and a lighted ceiling dome. Music came from a Barton three-pipe organ. The theater opened on June 19, 1924 with its large marquee announcing some vaudeville acts. The Washington Theater joined several other theaters that already existed on Hampshire Street, all of which hosted vaudeville acts. The original owners operated the theater for two years and then they sold to Ballenbin and Katz, which were Chicago-based theater entrepreneurs. They decided to remodel the theater to handle more patrons, and they lowered the stage and added a swamp cooling system. New stage lighting was added, and the dressing rooms were enlarged. Silent movies were added to the offerings, and in 1929, Washington Theater became the first talking picture house in Quincy. By the 1940s, the theater was only working as a movie house, and it remained that way until 1971. Carasotti's Showplace Theaters, LLC, a Chicago-based movie theater chain, bought the Washington Theater and they ran it for the next 11 years, closing the doors in 1982. The theater was then donated to the city of Quincy. In the late 1980s, another group came in and bought the theater and held it until 2000, using it for storage and allowing it to fall into disrepair. The city bought it back and a redevelopment commission decided to restore it back to the way it was in 1924, and run it as a multi-purpose entertainment venue. So I stumbled upon this podcast called Wild Quincy, which is a podcast looking into the lesser known and forgotten past of Quincy, Illinois. And during October, they were kind of doing some creepy type stuff. And this is hosted by Chris Coders and Travis Hoffman. And they both do a little paranormal investigating on the side, I guess. So they've actually conducted an investigation at the theater right here I think it was in October of 2023. It was very recently. They saw shadow figures. The obelisk gave them several words and the K2 went off repeatedly. They captured several EVP. There was a breathy yes, a child's voice that we couldn't understand, but could have been singing. And then there was a distant female child voice that was hard to hear, but seemed to be reacting to a boo bear that they had put out. During a previous investigation, Chris asked, would you like the theater to be fixed? And an EVP said, you bet I would. Wow. Yeah. And I kind of nice. like the you bet I would sounds more recent, like more re recent vernacular. I don't know. Maybe they would say that back in the 1920s. I'm not exactly sure why we've got children here. There's no backstory for that kind of thing. So I don't know. 
There is a ghost hollow road here in Quincy with all the standard legends like hidden cemeteries and disappearing houses, but we didn't find anything substantial in any stories we read or heard. But the name sure is cool. I mean, ghost hollow, it sounds like it should be haunted. (laughs) Right. The question is, are these locations in Quincy, Illinois haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, lots of cool stuff. A very historic city. And I encourage you to check out that Wild Quincy podcast if you want to find out more about the history of Quincy. Apparently, they had some mobsters that lived there and stuff, too, when I was perusing their podcast episode titles and such. We'd love to have you guys peruse our website, historyghostbump.com. And if you'd like to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. We want to thank you guys for joining us on this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. You can find History Goes Bump on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Google Play, and anywhere you can listen to podcasts. Lawyer Abraham Lincoln married Mary. I know. Sorry, I wrote it that way. But he did marry Mary. (laughs) He did. And then I just want to jump into saying Todd and not her middle name. So Mary Todd. When she made... (laughs) Our mouths are having a hard... Just have a Kelly bug today. met... (laughs) Whatever. Despite Lincoln's lack of political... Oh boy. There's prospects. There's prospects. <laughs> Sounds I like a might vegetable that this. you wouldn't want to eat. <laughs> Sprockets. We're going back to the Jetsons. Meet the Jetsons. <laughs> Actually, I was just doing the Flintstones. What was yeah, the I was Jetsons like, meet song? the Jetsons. They're a... <laughs> Stone Age. No, they're not. <laughs> feature, feature, whatever family. <laughs> meet George Jetson, his boy, Elroy. Daughter Judy, Jane, his wife. Uh, this is what happens when we just roll out of bed because we got a lot of stuff we got to get done this weekend. And I don't know that I'm quite awake yet. We love October, but we are always exhausted and overbooked and overstimulated. <laughs> I like look so forward to October and then I look forward to it being over. Mets chold a chold? He chold a high bluff. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Every day, we rise 
challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Has the winter season taken a toll on your tile, upholstery, carpet? Call Cyclone Cleaners, 570-726-6200. For all your carpet, upholstery, and ceramic tile cleaning needs, it's Cyclone Cleaners. Also offering odor treatment and soil and stain guard. Choose the only cleaning company that supplies the water to clean your home and disposes of it when they are finished. Call Cyclone Cleaners to schedule your cleaning today, 570-726-6200.